No, you got you got the evening. Whatever whatever you yeah. need. I'm, so, I'm good for I'm good for duration. It's the third date. I think we <laughs> Oh my. Oh, That's the most disturbing thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Welcome back to the Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Or your brain hole. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Ken Brigham and Dr. Paul Williams. Hi. Hey Stuart. Paul, you that Paul, are you here? <laughs> yes, still. Oh here. hi, Paul. <laughs> Stuart, your timing is just perfect. It's because he went so quickly. You were trying to go so fast that I couldn't interrupt you. Well, I know what you're doing. I can read your mind. Yes, that's true. We uh, established that in an episode with, uh, uh, oh crap, DJ MMC. <laughs> I, I have no idea what you're talking about, so I'm just going to go yeah. on and talk I, about- I have to listen to that one. Talk about this great episode- with Dr. Joel Topf. This is part one of two with Dr. Joel Topf talking about chronic kidney disease. On part one right. here, we talk about just how do you talk to patients about what chronic kidney disease is and mm -hmm. what labs you order at the first visit, at follow-up visits, which GFR formula should you use to estimate, and how do you estimate creatinine clearance? And uh, finally, when do you refer patients to nephrology? We, we got... Pretty clear answers to all these questions, plus a bunch more on this part one. <laughs> Our guest is Dr. Joel Toff. He is a medical educator, best known as at Kidney Boy on Twitter. He is one of the creators of the Nephrology Journal Club and Nef Madness, as well as being known for his blog, Precious Bodily Fluids, Musings of a Salt Whisperer. Dr. Joel Toff is a board-certified nephrologist and partner at St. Clair Nephrology. He holds academic appointments as assistant clinical professor at the Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine and academic faculty for the St. John Hospital and Medical Center Nephrology Fellowship. His previous appearance were, his previous appearances were fan favorites, so of course we've asked him back as our chief of nephrology to discuss chronic kidney disease. That's right. This, this episode's... Ugh. What was the pun? Well, I was going to say this episode's so full, so chock full of information that just spilled over into a second episode. <laughs> okay. That's actually marginally better than your usual work. So <laughs> you should probably hang on to that one. <laughs> I think we've all agreed to turn our heads on the whole stimulant thing. Everyone's addicted to them and uh, we're just... <laughs> oh. Well, listen, I mean... I mean, increased lifespan, I mean, it's linear. Like, the more coffee you drink, the longer you live. So, I'm just I'm just looking out for number one. I think yeah. coffee is healthy. <laughs> All right. Well, let's ease into this one. This is Dr. Matthew Watto here with my co-host, Paul Williams, and Stuart Brigham. That's right, Stuart. Well, I said it different yes. order tonight. I know. I know <laughs> and, you did. Uh, I know that, that really bothers. I know, <laughs> I know for Stuart more that is really hard for him to accept. Uh, it's also not an alphabetical order. I don't like it. Sorry. So, I'm sorry. Okay. And, and with us tonight is Dr. Joel Topf. The much-requested uh, return of Dr. Joel Toff. Hi, Joel. Chief of Nephrology. Hello. Happy to be here. Yeah, Chief of Nephrology. Please, our Chief, chief of Nephrology. Our Chief <laughs> of Nephrology. Sorry, all due respect, Dr. <laughs> no, Chief. His name's Chief. 
Joel, we actually owe you a press release because my wife uh, is she actually you know does does this for a living and uh, she will write a proper press release. So I'm promising you that on air. So <laughs> I'm now obligated to get th- to make that happen. But uh, I think it would be hilarious. Stuart and I were talking about this. If like they start picking it up on a newswire yes. that uh you know that that you were we're, we're, we're hoping they'll pick <laughs> it up on like Cash Fox Memorial. News or CNN or something. Yeah, what I really want. Cash I, I want the the cash like memorial patch to put on my white coat. Okay. I'm gonna have We've to work on those two on Cafe coats, Press. Yes. All right, guys. Well let's let's jump into some picks of the week. And and Joel, you're the guest, so let's let's give your pick of the week first. So uh my pick of the week is Mata tea. And this is a a, a South American tea and it's a stimulant and sometimes when you've had too much coffee and you you just can't have another cup of coffee and you need to switch gears uh pour yourself a cup of mata and uh it comes as a um it comes as a loose a loose tea so there's no tea bag you actually put the 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 tea loose grounds into your cup and you pour water on that and then you have a special straw and the straw is made out of metal but it has a a strainer at the bottom of it and so you drink through you drink the mata tea right through this metal straw, and it's a uh, it's it's weird and different, and uh, and uh, it'll keep you it'll keep you working. It's good for studying. I would highly recommend mata tea as my or staying away for the for the curbsiders. Apparently, <laughs> Listen, I the wheels are turning so fast for me trying to think of a joke involving stimulants and funny straws, but I just probably none of them are actually appropriate. <laughs> okay, Only Paul. You, Paul. How about a pick of the week instead, Paul? Oh, uh, sure. So um, maybe slightly less controversial than my prior recommendation of cocaine. I'm going to recommend a different <laughs> podcast. Um, it's a it's a non medical podcast uh, that I, I that I found really interesting. It's called Citations Needed. It's hosted by Adam Johnson and Nima Shirazi, and it's actually it's a media podcast um, that sort of looks at the way that media portrays the United States. Um, and it's just it's a critical appraisal of the United States. The most re- recent episode was actually about how as a country we're always characterized as stumbling into war or being dragged into war. So as you sort of read through all the headlines, in the way that it's framed, it's always that we're these reluctant savior. And I don't know that I agree with their points, but I do like that they are critically looking at the way that media um, just sort of speaks to us and sort of forces us to frame the conversation. So I, th- I think it's worth a listen um, regardless of your political leanings, but if you're a lefty like me, it's even more appealing. Along those same Sorry. lines, along those same lines, my the podcast that I'd like to re- recommend is is a recent episode of the TED Radio Hour. I believe it was called Influence, and they were talking about how technology, while it's basically about how everyone's addicted to technology and how mm-hmm. a couple of these giant companies like Google and some of the other ones have tremendous influence over us because everybody is, I mean, face it, we're addicted to our smartphones. So. I, I'm just like I'm. I'm always trying to be more cognizant about how addicted I am to my smartphone because I'm definitely addicted to it. And I think it's just like you. You, you can't. You know, you're probably not going to win the fight, but at least you're aware that there's a fight and try to be cognizant. Then you have a chance. Yeah, I'm a little embarrassed to to bring it up just because it's so pretentious. But Chomsky talked about this. I mean, years ago about how media existed just to frame the conversation, and now with sort of the recent, like the Facebook. Um, I don't know what the right sort of propaganda sort of accusations and that kind of stuff. Like it's still incredibly relevant how we see and what we see and how often we see it, how it actually changes the way that we think. So I, I think it's, it's neat to think about at the very least. Excellent. Did you have and, any uh, Stuart? 
Yeah, actually, I do. It's it's again another article that uh, this one came out about a week and a half ago in JAMA. Um, it's the effect of oral semiglutide compared with placebo and subcutaneous semiglutide on glycemic control in patients with, with type two diabetes. This is a phase two trial that uh, could potentially be um, uh, groundbreaking in the the treatment of diabetes. So th- this looks at an oral GLP one receptor agonist and c- compared to a subcutaneous uh, GLP one receptor agonist, and found that forty milligrams of oral semiglutide, when compared to one milligram of subcutaneous semiglutide, had the um, the equivalent A one C reduction and also weight weight loss. Wow! So right, so I, I'm I'm looking out for this one in the future. That's gonna be a big deal. Yeah, if, yeah. It will as long be. as nothing catastrophic happens. What was that? Where was that published? This was published in JAMA. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Way to go, JAMA. I think everyone it's would be happy. Only, only, only second to an article was published in 1989 called The Art of Pimping. It's a wonderful JAMA article, too. That's a great article. <laughs> okay. I, let, let's move into the main topic because it's a, it's a large topic, and I want to make sure that we have some time here. So we'll skip. We've already done uh, our, the rest of our normal questions with Joel, so we're just going to move into the topic. And let's start with a case from Cashlack Memorial Hospital. Joel, I imagine this patient would have been headed to see you at some point. So this is Donald, a 56-year-old African-American gentleman. He has heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, and CKD. He hasn't been to a clinic in a long time, so he's a new patient to you. He's not on any medications. His creatinine is found to be 1.7. Looks like one record you have from way back looks like that's around his baseline. So... Before we kind of go along how we approach CKD in the office, I wanted to know, how do you actually explain CKD to patients? Especially if they've had it for like 10 years. (laughs) You're the first person to ever say it to them. They always tell me I'm the first person, and I know I'm not the first person. I think no one has effectively told them. Hmm. So how do you effectively tell them? So you know, this, this person's a very typical person that gets identified as having chronic kidney disease, and it has very little influence on how they actually feel or what kind of health impact it's going to have in the next five years. And so I really try to um, downplay this because I think the more they concentrate on CKD at these very, very early levels, the more it's just a distraction from what may be much more important uh, clinical problems. And so what I say is that, you know, you're, you're 56 years old, you have diabetes and hypertension, and these are the two primary causes of kidney disease. And sure enough, they're starting to cause some kidney damage in you. Um, We don't have any information on their urinalysis, so I don't know how much proteinuria. So it's not clear that they have classic uh, diabetic nephropathy or kind of our, the newer version of diabetic nephropathy, one we're more more and more recognizing is this non-proteinuric variety. About 40% of people with type 2 diabetes will have progressive kidney failure, but they don't get proteinuria. And if you do a biopsy, they don't have the Kimmelstein-Wilson lesions that are so pathognomonic for diabetic kidney disease. And I'd say, you know, your kidney disease, uh, you know, if you plug in his numbers, his age and his race and his uh, creatinine, it comes out to a GFR 51 milliliters per minute. And I usually show them that and I say, you know, you're just like you can't run as fast as you could when you were 18 years old. Your kidney is not as efficient as it was when you were 18 years old. It probably was about 125% at that time. It's down to something roughly equivalent to 51%. 
And for a guy who's 56 years old, that's worse than we would expect. A lot of times I'll have this talk and the person will be 76 years old. And I say, you know what? This is pretty typical for your age. But in this guy, in this case, I would say, Hey, this is worse than we would expect. And this is something, you know, you need to be focusing on the diabetes. You need to be focusing on the hypertension. Otherwise, what is now kind of a lab abnormality and something that we say is something that's interesting to look at uh, is going to become much more of a prominent problem. But that's a decade away where it's going to be really significant. And, you know, presumably he is in the hospital or and has more pressing immediate problems. Is there so you mentioned a couple things there that I wanted to swing back to. So the loss with age, is there a, a kind of general rule of thumb for what you expect the loss in EGFR to be with age? So uh, first of all, this is a, this is a contentious issue in uh nephrology. There are people that really study this loss of function with age and within them there is a raging debate whether uh, there is a natural and normal loss of kidney function with age that even if you're perfectly healthy, you'll lose some kidney function. And there are people that will plant a flag and declare uh, without hesitation that that doesn't happen. Mm. And then I think there's everybody else who takes care of patients and say, you know what, as they get older, their kidney function goes down. And I personally don't care much about the uh, the religious arguments that people have about this, where people, <laughs> they feel strongly about it. And to me, it's, it does seem a little silly. Like, it does seem like people generally lose kidney function. And it's about, uh, it's about a milliliter per year after the age of 40. And so 10 cc's per minute per decade. Which equation were you using when you quickly punched in the numbers here? Because I know that this is a question we had from Facebook. Like, which equation should people be using? Are there different times you use different equations? Yeah, great question. Okay, so let's, there are only two equations that you should ever use today. Okay, and that one of them is a creatinine clearance, and the other one is CKD epi. Okay, but we can go through the history and we can walk through it. So the very first equation that allowed us to estimate kidney function is called cockcroft galt And this was uh, this uh, the fact that it became standard of care for decades is uh, is mostly embarrassing to medicine. <laughs> no, because it was like it was 80 inpatients at a VA hospital in the 70s. So that means it was 100 percent male. Wow. They were in the hospital for cause. Right. So they were ill with something else and whether it was so kidney great. disease or not. And we use that to and and the gold standard they were looking at was not GFR. It was creatinine clearance. And remember, creatinine clearance is an estimate of GFR. It's not they're not synonymous. And so what we have is we have an equation to estimate something that's an estimate of a renal function. And, <laughs> and so it's, you know, and there were no women. And uh, if, you, if you're familiar with the equation. You multiply it by 0.85 to get the GFR for women. And where that comes from, <laughs> literally where that comes from is in the discussion, they say, well, we would expect women to have smaller GFR. So we would suggest multiplying it by 0.85. <laughs> wow. And so. And they're like, and also we don't care about them anyway, I imagine. So. <laughs> Unless they're the same to their paychecks. And <laughs> yeah. So, this, this yeah. Is, so that's, that's, that's cockcroft. Cock it, yeah. It's not, it's not a good equation. And I don't think we need to talk about article. it anymore. Wow. Uh, then in the uh, late eighties, the burning most important uh, yeah. question in nephrology was does a low protein diet protect you from chronic kidney disease? Does it delay the progression to dialysis? 
And uh, first of all, if you're a mouse, it absolutely does. Okay. So for all, if you're taking care of a lot of mouses, put them on a low protein diet. If you're taking care <laughs> of people, well, that was a more difficult question. And uh, the federal government came to our rescue and did a enormous for the time study called the modification of diet in renal disease called the MDRD. And this was as this is like the Apollo space program for nephrology. We threw <laughs> all the technology that we had. At <laughs> Wonderful. We measured GFRs periodically with infusions of, and I, don't, I forget which infusions they were doing, but this is the most accurate way to measure a GFR where you actually do an infusion, get a steady state level in the plasma, in and then you record its clearance in the, in the, inulin? In the it, it may have, been, I don't think they actually did inulin, but it's essentially equivalent technology. Okay. And then they, as part of that study, uh, Andrew Levy said, well, let, let's make an equation. We've got an incredible data source here because we know actually what these GFRs and we, and we have, and they had creatines and albumins and races and weights and everything. And he went through and came up with MDRD formula, which was a huge advance over um, Cockroft And it's a great formula. There are some questions uh, there were not a lot of African-Americans in the study. They were all Americans in the study. So that's maybe a weakness. And um, to be enrolled in the study, you had to have kidney disease. So this may not be a good representation for normal patients. And in fact, when people looked at it, at the high GFRs, GFRs north of 60, this equation was not very accurate. And it was then replaced by the CKD epi, much larger population that was brought in, a lot more uh, patients that don't have kidney disease that were brought in. And the numbers are not that much different. If you can plug them in simultaneously, down low, you'll see two or three milliliters per minute difference. But up high at 60 and 70 GFR, you can get a pretty significant splay. That's what you should be using all the time. And the one, the one other thing about CKD Epi is uh, when they set it up, they did set it up so it would be easy for other countries to modify their CKD epi. So there's like an Asian, East Asian CKD epi version and a Central Asian CKD epi version so that they, when they established how this equation was designed, they allowed for local data to be added. And so that that data can be customized for different regions. And when you're talking about a creatinine clearance, which you said we should also be using, are you talking about just from a 24-hour collection? Right. So all of these equations count on or uh, expect relatively normal-sized people. And so I, I have a patient who uh, is tiny. She's not she's not five feet. She's not even four foot six. <laughs> and, and she, and she, you know, she's, she's really, she's child sized. And when I do the, uh, the MDRD or the, the CKD epi on her, it gives her quite a, quite good kidney function because she's, and when I do a creatinine clearance, it looks like she's got profound renal failure to the point where she is eligible to be on the transplant list by a 24 hour creatinine clearance and is pretty good kidney function by a CKD epi. And so, you, you know, you, you, as soon as you walked in the clinic, I was like, well, we're just not going to be able to do a CKD epi on her with creatinine. We're going to need to do something else. And that's what the creatinine clearance does is it allows you, it accounts for creatinine generation or it accounts for muscle mass. So not only the very small people, but I've gotten a number of referrals from, for bodybuilders, people that are really big, they have a lot more creatinine production, and their kidney function is going to look a lot worse. 
they come in, they say, oh, but I'm, my, the equation says I got 40% kidney function. And I take one look at him. You know, the guy rode his bike <laughs> miles to my clinic. I was like, I don't think that's you. And we'll do a 24-hour creatinine clearance and their kidney function will be, you know, 70 or 90 milliliters per minute. And I'll, you know, set, discharge them from the clinic. They're fine. And when you're doing the 24-hour creatinine clearance, how is that going to be reported to us as primary care? Like, So, yeah. So, um, uh, the equation is not difficult. I don't, it may be, it may be reported. Uh, my hospital doesn't report it. And I just ask for the 24 hour creatinine mm-hmm. in milligrams. Mm-hmm. And then I take that, I multiply that by a hundred. I divide that by the number of minutes in the day times their serum creatinine. So for example, serum, co- a cl- a creatinine collection of 1440 milligrams times 100 divided by a serum creatinine of one times the number of minutes in day, which is 1440 would come out to a hundred divided by one GFR of a hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and remember the creatinine production is really not related to their renal function. So that same person with, uh, uh, a 1440 milligrams of creatinine collection, if they get a nephrectomy or have significant chronic kidney disease, they come back a couple of years later, they have a creatinine of two. You do the, tw- if they're still the same weight and you do this 24 hour collection, They'll still be right there at 1440, but now you'll be dividing it by two or three or whatever their creatinine is. Mm. So the, the, the 24-hour urine creatinine really doesn't vary. Hmm. It's just a serum creatinine. Um, and it's good to have uh, an estimate of what that number should be so you can know if the collection was adequate. And so for men... Uh, the estimate is uh, 20 milligrams of creatinine per kilogram body weight. And for women, it's 15 milligrams of creatinine per kilogram body weight. And of course, you know, if they're very fat, their num- that number is going to go down, right? They'll have less creatinine per body weight because fat doesn't generate any creatinine. Mm-hmm. So it seems like if someone did have a single, a solitary kidney and their creatinine is higher, then that, that equation is going to kind of be affected. So you just have to take that into account that... Um, the, the equation's fine. It's still fine. The equation equation works. Single kidney, two kidneys, six kidneys. Ki- equation works. <laughs> okay. It works. It works. They got two legs, no legs, yeah. large, bodybuilder, all the, the, the creatinine clearance works in all circumstances. Okay. But you need to get an adequate collection. Yeah. Got it. I, I think for, for, so for this gentleman, so you said you calculated a creatinine clearance and what did it? No, no. That's, that, or, sorry. You calculated, calculated GFR. GFR. GFR, sorry. And, and, the, and the, the nomenclature is that's an EGFR. Estimated. Estimated GFR, that's right. Yeah, okay. So one of, one of the questions that, that I would have, so in primary care, I see these patients, I diagnose, this patient has CKD3, this patient has CKD4. How often are you going to bring them back and, and what labs should we be checking? Just kind of on an annual or semi-annual basis. Well, why don't we, why don't we start with that first visit? Okay. Right. So the, the first visit, the first thing you want to do is you want to see, you know, does this guy have uh, a glomerulonephritis? Is there some kind of kidney, primary kidney disease that we can intervene on and we can change this person's long-term outcome? Or is he like the vast majority of people that are rolling into the clinic that have modestly weaker kidneys because of their history of hypertension and diabetes? And so uh, the most powerful tool there is going to be the urinalysis. And then you're going to want to quantify the proteinuria, okay? And then ideally, you'll be able to look back and you want to see what their history of proteinuria is. The thing about diabetes is it can cause very profound proteinuria 
but it gradually builds up. It doesn't, it's not normal, 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 and all of a sudden three grams of protein. <laughs> and, and, but there's some disease, that's what membranous does. Mm. That's what FSGS does it. They're healthy one day and the next day they're sick. And that's the clue that you're looking for. You're like, we need to biopsy that patient. I see. Right. And so the urinalysis, you're going to look for heavy proteinuria and you're going to look for uh, hematuria. And if it's hematuria, you got to work that up, right? Is it lower tract disease or upper tract disease? And this is just your internal medicine stuff, right? Yeah. More commonly, it's going to be bladder disease. That's right. going to be the most common cause of hematuria, and you got to rule that out. But once that's ruled out and you still have red cells, you know, if you're, if you're good with a microscope, you can see deformed red cells, and that's going to indicate uh, red cells that have gone through uh, the loop of Henle, gone through that very high osmotic environment. They get all st- stretched out and and just and bent and, and uh, kind of altered, so they look weird. But if you don't have that, you just, you know, you say I got persistent red cells and I don't have uh, any evidence of lower tract disease and the patient doesn't have kidney stones when we've done imaging of the stu- patient, you're going to want to pursue that. Um, you know, I don't think we have the room to go through a GN workup in this, in this, we're just talking about CKD, yeah. but that's the, that's the road you're going to go down on that patient. You're going to be mm-hmm. looking for lupus and you're going to looking for, uh, the, the low complement diseases, whether it's IgA, you gotta, you gotta evaluate all of those things. Mm-hmm. So the, the urinalysis and you want to quantify that proteinuria, right? And so the way that we, the, the, the way that we're told to monitor the proteinuria is, um, albumin to creatinine ratio. I'm not a huge fan of that, especially in that first evaluation. I like the protein to creatinine ratio because the albumin to creatinine ratio misses one, one important disease, right? Light chains. This is the myeloma. That's exactly right. And I see, I see too much of that, right? It's, you know, and talk about a disease that we now can really do something for. We got great drugs for multiple myeloma. You don't want to ever miss that. We got a great pathway to take care of these people. And so I would hate to just check an albumin to creatinine ratio and miss it. So I spend the extra couple of bucks to get the protein to creatinine ratio, make sure that's not, that's not what it is. If it's just albumin, we can move along and in the future, just check albumin to creatinine ratios. Yeah. I was going to say about the, the, I think it's just interesting to mention, cause this is something that I think probably Stuart, Stuart had pointed out to me that the, mm. so your, pro, your protein, the main protein, you have immunoglobulins and you have, or you have globulins and you have albumin, like if you get a, so, so the albumin urine albumin, you're checking the albumin fraction, the urine protein, is that checking for globulins or is that checking all protein when you check all the urine? Pro- all, protein. Yeah. all protein. All protein. So it includes the albumin, includes the globulins. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've always, I've always been told that a urine dipstick only, is only able to, to uh, uh, um, detect globulin fraction proteinuria. Is that, that not correct? Flip that. Flip the that. So albumin? Just albumin. Okay. Just okay. Yeah. So it'll pick it'll pick up you know your run of the mill diabetes no problem, but it'll miss your myeloma. Right. Gotcha. So if someone has light chains, those are going to be globulins. So you're going to want to check the urine protein to creatinine ratio because it has all the types of protein, globulins and albumin. But from there on, if that's normal, you can just go to the urine albumin for your patients with diabetes. Okay. I think I got it, Paul. The question I was going to ask is now that we've actually you determined the GFR, I want to ask you a question about staging, if I could. So yeah. the classification, um, it's, it's gotten sort of more specific, it sounds like. So, you know, down to the level of 3A and 3B and talking about albuminuria. How do you use that? Is that just a language that we talk to each other with so that we know where we stand? Or are there things practically that you can that you use that information for? 
Right. So, uh, you know, the, the CKD staging thing, it, it came out, I think, in 2002, maybe two, I think it was 2002 or 2003. And it was a it was a godsend to the field of, of nephrology because all of a sudden we had a unified way of talking about these patients. And we could now instead of instead of just saying mild or severe, we really had a very specific population in mind. And it allowed us to start targeting, and we knew intuitively that patients that were on the doorstep of dialysis were very different than the patient with a creatinine of 1.7, and it now allowed us to separate those patients in a way that we all agreed upon. And the, the original one was uh, a GFRs uh, uh, greater than 90 with other evidence of kidney disease was a stage one, and uh, 60 to 89 with some evidence of kidney disease was a stage two, and then a GFR of 30 to 59 was a stage three. Later, you know, that that ended up being, the key here is that stage three did not have a requirement for an additional evidence of kidney disease. The GFR alone was enough for them to qualify. And what that really opened up the floodgates, and we included a tremendous number of primarily elderly people that were never going to progress to kidney failure uh, in that grouping. That led to uh, two things. One, we split CKD3 into an A and B. So A is from uh, 45 to uh, 59, and B is from 30 to 44. And then we had um, CKD stage 4 from 15 to 29, and stage 5 from essentially 0 to 14. And then most recently, I think it was 2012, the KDGO added um, albuminuria 1, 2, and 3 to the guidelines. So A1 means uh, albuminuria from 0 to 30, 2 is from 30 to 300, and 3 is greater than 300. And uh, this allowed them to use, a, they created a heat map. And you can see this heat map everywhere. And it's actually super helpful. And it kind of shows that it's not just GFR that's important. That if you add in the proteinuria, you start to get a two-dimensional map, and the two together are very bad. But even albuminuria in the absence of pretty severe GFR can be a problem. It can be problematic, and that two-dimensional way of looking at it is actually a lot, uh, a lot more helpful. And it does allow us to reassure a lot of people that have this decreased GFR but no significant proteinuria that they're not in this real danger zone. Is, is that a practical tool that we can that you recommend we bring up in clinic and actually show the patients based on their you know I, I, um, I think it's a better teaching tool for residents if you okay. want it the one that I like for patients is uh, is this um, there was a study by Tangri uh, in uh, in JAMA I think it was 2012 and what it, it is an equation that allows you to estimate their two-year and five-year risk of needing dialysis. So it's um it's a it's 2016. Oh, I totally have the wrong year. It's called multinational assessment of accuracy of equations for predicting risk of kidney failure. A meta analysis. What I use is uh, QRX has that equation uh, available uh, on the web, and you can go to the website and you can use the equation. Okay. And so our gentleman. Our gentleman that we had at Cashlack, this is the 54-year-old with a creatinine of 1.7, yeah. a GFR of 51. His two-year risk of end-stage renal disease is 0.42%. So usually when I talk to patients, I flip that over and I say that you've got a 99.58% chance of not being on dialysis <laughs> in the next two years. <laughs> and all of a sudden they're like, oh, that sounds pretty good. 
And then I say in the next five years, he has a 1.32%. So I'm like, well, 98.68%, yeah. 98.68% chance of not being on dialysis in five years. And that now you start, you, 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 you've drawn this thing out five years into the future. And that is, I think that's a great way of establishing perspective. And all of a sudden the GFR 51 that may have sounded, oh my God, I've lost half my kidney function, which is <laughs> true, right? All of a sudden, it, it all of a sudden doesn't sound nearly as scary. You're like, well, for five years, this is what, this is what it looks like. Um, and I think that that's something that I found patients immediately grasp, they immediately understand. And I use it, you know, and you know, even when it's pretty severe, you're like, well, it's a 20% chance in two years. And they're like, okay, well, that's an 80% chance I won't be on dialysis. Okay, that sounds good to me, right? It allows them to, it, give, it does allow them to plan. If I'm seeing these kind of numbers as a primary care, I'm probably going to say this person low risk for, for progression, I'm probably not going to be referring them. So I think a, a, a place to take this would be like, who does need to be referred when, when you see these numbers? Yeah. That, and that's so, and we actually, we, we did miss something when we talked about the initial workup, we talked about the urinalysis, we talked about assessing proteinuria. I want to emphasize two other things. I want to emphasize blood pressure and the ultrasound. So the ultrasound, again, it's a low yield test. You're not going to find a lot on there, but occasionally you're going to find one small kidney. That's evidence of atherosclerotic renal disease. You're going to want to investigate that further. Sometimes you'll find a tumor. You can save a life there. You can pop that kidney out if they've got a cancer. And then you'll sometimes see obstructive evidence of obstruction. And I want to fix it. And that's, again, easy to, easy to solve problem. And so I, oh, I do the ultrasound. I don't think it's super high risk, but I think you can help a patient out there. And then the blood pressure, you know, you know, this is something, its effect on protect, protecting the kidneys uh, is not impressive, but its effect on preventing uh, strokes and heart failure and heart attacks is super impressive. And, you know, I say, you know, after telling a patient to quit smoking and wear their seatbelt, probably the next best thing you can do is get their blood pressure under control. <laughs> I like that. And, uh, and remember, these patients, you know, if they've got CKD, their blood pressure is going to be more difficult to control. And so it's worthwhile spending that energy and that time focusing on that blood pressure. I don't think it's going to make a big difference in protecting their kidneys. And sorry to say, I wish I wish there was a bigger effect there. <laughs> but, but you know, we, we've already established the chance of this patient progressing is very low. He's much higher ch risk of having trouble, especially with his diabetes, of having heart disease. So you got to get that blood pressure. You got to tame that. So which patients would, would you recommend that we do send to you after this initial workup? Right. Okay. So first off, anybody you're uncomfortable with, mm -hmm. like I, this is my bread and butter. I deal with this all the time. You guys seem very capable. If you're comfortable taking care of this stuff, that's great. The ones you should refer, I would refer everybody with a GFR south of 30. Mm -hmm. Okay. I would refer everybody with significant proteinuria. I would, anybody who's got a bunch of red cells in the urine. Anybody whose blood pressure you can't control, and I'll tell you what, a lot of the time, the controlling the blood pressure, is a, there's a lot of patient involvement there, and there is a signal to patients when you send them to a doctor because and you tell them, I can't get your blood pressure in control, I'm sending you to a specialist, that's right. a wake-up call to that patient. <laughs> no, I'm serious. And I, sometimes I don't do much new, but what happens is the patient's more involved. They realize that you're, you mean business on this, and it becomes easier to control. I don't, you know, I'll, I'll take all the credit in the world, but I don't think I deserve <laughs> a lot well, of you're gonna, you're gonna you, To go back to a prior episode, you're going to switch their HCTZ to chlorothaladone, so that's going to be one big effect. <laughs> Which uh, I can say that one, I practically speaking, I had a lot of success doing that myself after we talked. 
So thanks yeah, for that one. Yeah, chlorothalidone yeah, and spironolactone is a lot of all I do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Can you can you you mentioned significant proteinuria? Can I can you get a little bit more specific there? Um, I'm gonna buy if it's north of if it's north of two grams on a 24 hour collection or a PCR of two protein to creatinine ratio of two. Mm. I'm gonna biopsy them unless. You know, they've got diabetes and I have some other, I know what, and I know what the disease is. And you saw like the steady progression in diabetes, probably don't need to biopsy that person. Exactly. But outside of that, they're going to get a biopsy needle. Okay. All right. Right. It's just, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a logarithmic increase. The upper limit of normal is 200. Now they're at 2000. Right. So let's say that we're, we're following this gentleman. We, we've noticed that he has low risk for progression. Blood pressure doesn't seem too bad. How often should we be checking labs and what labs should we be checking on this patient? This, uh, you know, for a CKD3 and you say his blood pressure is well controlled, I'd be seeing him twice a year. Mm. Okay. Okay. You, do, would you need to see them more often than that for their diabetes? Yeah, if they're not controlled, yeah, then we might see them, you know, monthly right. or every three months. It just kind of depends. And then what I would follow, nice I'd follow they are. Right. I'd follow their urinalysis, I'd follow their albuminuria, and I'd follow uh, their creatinine. Okay. And what about patients with, uh, I guess, so most of us, if someone has CKD4, we're going to be sending them to a nephrologist. Mm. Are those the patients where you're checking their their PTH, you're checking iron studies and, and all those things? And can you go through just hypothetically- So I'm over-checking everything. So hypothetically, uh, we're, we're Dr. Stuart Brigham. We like to do things ourselves. We have a patient with CKD4 yes. who's more or less been stable. What lab should Stuart be checking for that patient? Yeah. Okay. So you're going to want to, first of all, at CKD4, you're going to want to turn up the frequency. I like to touch base with them yeah, four times a months. year. Yeah. Yep. Perfect. And then uh, I add a, I want to check their hemoglobin because they're going to be at high risk for right. anemia. And that anemia is mostly going to be iron deficiency anemia. Right. It's not going to be ESA deficiency or it's going to be erythropoietin deficiency. Right. It can happen at that GFR, but it that tends to be later. But they have uh, elevated hepcidin level, so they have very poor iron absorption. You may not be able to get past that with oral iron anyway, and you may need mm-hmm. um, IV iron. I'll probably check maybe yearly a PTH. Um, I am not a personally, I'm not a huge fan of treating secondary hyperparathyroidism. Uh, the data is thin in terms of patients that are not yet on dialysis. And it's not great once they're on dialysis, but certainly before dialysis, we have drugs that are very effective at lowering the PTH. We just don't have the evidence that that helps the patients. Certainly we haven't seen that it slows the progression to dialysis and the evidence that it would prevent fractures or improve bone health, uh, or improve cardiovascular health. These are all the promises that have been made in the past for secondary hyperparathyroidism. It really hasn't panned out. I see. Okay. So for right now, I guess it sounds like you can treat their vitamin, you can replete their vitamin D maybe, but don't go crazy chasing the PTH down to a normal level. Is yeah. That- yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that and and I th- and 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 I want to point out that that I'm going against what the uh, the KDGO guidelines right. are going to recommend you to be more aggressive here, but it's a lot of uh, uh, B and C recommendations. Okay. And the again one of one of the big arguments for treating this and, I, and this one is is real and operative is that if these patients ultimately go on to dialysis and if you you've ignored this PTH the whole time and by the time they enter dialysis they're rocking a PTH of 400 to 600. Hmm. 
you may find that when you start treating them, that parathyroid gland is not responsive to our typical medications. This is the natural history of this disease, is that if you don't control that, that PTH gets so high, you can't, it's no longer a, a, a gland, it's not so much secondary, it's no, no longer responding to the normal stimuli. Okay. And, um, and if you do have these super high PTH levels for many, many years, that re- does result in uh, bone pain and severe itching and um, weak bones and brittle bones. And I've seen that in all my patients. And um, so, again, at early CKD4, it's usually not a problem. I will check the PTH probably yearly. And if I do see it really taking off and getting above 150, 200, 250, mm. I will give them a little active vitamin D to keep that in check. Yeah. yeah. I, I just had a patient with a 176. I started paracalcitol on. So this, and, and I think we could do a whole episode on this kind of, uh, th- this kind of topic. So, but I think this was a nice little teaser for that, maybe for a future, yeah. future episode. I, I, I do have one kind of silly question. Is there ever an indication in, in your mind of ever checking a 125 OH vitamin D? Yeah. Hypercalcemia. Yeah. No, if okay. they have an elevated calcium, right? It's part of the worker for hypercalcemia. Right, right, right. But, but in, j- terms j- of, in terms CKD. of treating of secondary uh, para- hyperparathyroidism, I don't. Okay. So, Joel, if you're, if you're a primary care doctor, if you had some take-home points for our primary care that are taking care of patients with CKD, what would be the two or three take-home points you had for, for that topic? So uh, the first one is getting to the fact that they have CKD. It, that's not your diagnosis, right? That's you categorize their kidney function, but don't stop there. Make sure you understand why their kidney function is decreased. Is it diabetes? Is it a glomerulonephritis? Is it just hypertension? You want to make sure you're not missing something that you can intervene on. Don't don't be the guy that missed the myeloma because you didn't worry about that small degree of proteinuria, right? Make sure. You've gone through and you've worked up why their kidney function is decreased. Don't be satisfied with the diagnosis CKD stage three. You haven't finished the job. You've just started the job there. Mm. And then the things that you need to do are it's routine bread and butter internal medicine. Don't forget the urinalysis. Check your renal ultrasound. Quantify their proteinuria. Go through their medications and go through their history. Is this an acute change in their kidney function or has this been gradual? Did the proteinuria start yesterday or has it been going on for years? The more gradual it is, the less likely you're going to be able to intervene. The more acute the change is, the more likely there's something else going on and it needs to be picked up. Mm-hmm. In terms of referring to doctors, I think there's less need in terms of looking for a specific GFR. And I would reflect back to yourself. Are you still comfortable taking care of this patient? You can probably hold on to them. As that GFR slides below 30, they probably should be introduced to a nephrologist, but that doesn't mean they need to take over their care, but they need to be aware that that's going on. Great. So we'll probably break there and then go to a second episode. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Delicious. You could, you could find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You should also sign up to receive our weekly mailing list where you'll get our expertly done show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And please send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Tell us what you love or hate about the show. 
and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Good night. Well, hi, Paul. And I should uh, I should shout out to Justin Burke and Annie Medina who have helped with this episode writing uh, writing the questions and also uh, doing the show notes. So thank you to them. Yeah, we're going to have like, you know how SNL had that classic episode with like the five time club? <laughs> That's in your future. I got to uh, I got to get a budget for smoking jackets, Joe. I'll send you I'll send you one. They be white jackets with the cash like memorial signal on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Got to be flashing to you. <laughs>